This is the Airplane Geeks Podcast. We aim to educate and inform you, explore and expand your passion for aviation, and to entertain you a little along the way. This is episode 780 of the show where we talk aviation. I'm Max Flight, and it's a bits and pieces episode this week, and we have quite a few good pre-recorded segments for you. Here's what we have. Micah's trip report to Florida, including his flight on Breeze Airways, the meetup at your pizza shop in Largo, Florida, listener Martin Kemp shares how he got into aviation, Micah tells a story called A Family Matriarch Christmas. Then Micah and I talk about what it takes to become an air marshal. Micah and I give our thoughts on the Collings Foundation. Martin Kemp comes back and tells us about getting to know Launchpad Marzari and his chocolates. And finally, Micah presents his 2023 year in review. Well, that's a lot, but note that These segments are arranged as podcast chapters, so if your podcast app supports conventional podcast chapters, you can navigate around the episode and listen in whatever order you like. All right, let's get started. Now, as you probably know, Brian Coleman flew to Florida to see his mother, and he and Micah hatched this plan where Micah would fly down from Maine And then they'd meet at a local pizza place with some listeners. So first we have Micah and Brian discussing Micah's flight to Tampa on Breeze Airways. It's more than just a flight review. We also hear about Micah's experiences at the Tampa airport, at the Largo Holiday Inn and Suites, and even with his T-Mobile service. All right. So you get through security. What was the gate area like in the boarding process with Breeze? Was it a breeze? It was a breeze. If life could be a breeze, you'd fly breeze airways all the time. First of all, the Portland Jetport, rocking chairs sitting there facing out the windows. You can see the main runway. You can watch the gate area. You can, you can see everything. And it's very, very nice. There are some restaurants. I'm not going to go to a restaurant in Portland, Maine. I live only two or three miles from the airport. There's bars. There's all sorts of stuff. But it was very, very convenient. I was flying in first class. They put me in Nev's seat. I was in 1A. Oh, nice. Fortunately, he wasn't on that plane, but it was just fine. The boarding process was simple. Because I was in first class, what they call ascent class, ascent class got called, and I went right on. I was the first one on the plane. I saw a flight attendant. I asked her, are you the purser? And the flight attendant said, no, we don't have pursers. We're called flight attendant one with Breeze. And I said, oh, so you're flight attendant one? She said, yes. And I handed her a great big bag of Godiva chocolates, and you should have seen the smile oh, on nice. her face. She was so happy. I said, don't eat them all yourself. Try to share them with the other flight attendants. <laughs> Put my bag in the overhead bin, grabbed the uh, two candies, the Ferrara Rochers that I had, walked up to the flight deck, which was wide open, poked my head in, said hello, handed out the candy to the pilots, who were very, very kind, very happy to see it, very happy to see me, quite welcoming. Ended up going back to my seat. Yes, yeah, so at your seat. Did you have a chance to see what the coach cabin looked like? If you did, is it really the same as what I'd expect from a low-cost carrier? What are they doing different? Well, the flight was maybe about 85% full. So there were some empty seats. And as we were flying down, and this was the flight left at about 5 p.m., 
So it was already dark, but I just walked all the way down to the back galley and there were some empty seats or in fact, some empty rows. Breeze's fleet consists primarily of A220s. That's some Bombardier C-series. In the regular class, in the toward the back of the plane, not in first class, it's two and three. Two seats on one side of the plane, three seats on the other side of the plane, like the old DC-9 MD-80 mm-hmm. Boeing 717s. In first class, it's two and two. There was a couple of rows where there was nobody sitting in it, and I was in the back. They have a premium economy that gives you a little bit more leg room. I went into the back, sat down. Seats were comfortable. I could deal with that in a three-hour flight if I needed to. I don't know if I'd want to have it on a 12-hour flight. Right. But three hours, it was fine. Very, very comfortable. No seatback entertainment. No Wi-Fi on this aircraft, although a lot of their aircraft do have Wi-Fi. But a very, very comfortable flight and a very, very comfortable seat. And I would fly in any class, although you have to pay to check your bag if you're in economy or premium economy. In first class, you do or ascent class, you don't have to pay for a check bag. You get two check bags. But I was just doing a carry-on, so I didn't even have to worry about that. And I think just one thing I need to correct you on, it's no longer Bombardier. Airbus bought the A220 series of planes. Right. It used to be the Bombardier C series. Now it's called the A220. Yeah, I guess I probably didn't mention that correctly. (laughs) But they're all A220s. Airbus bought it because Boeing started a lawsuit. But that's a long and involved story we can get into another time. Yeah, exactly. Was there anything different about the first class seat or was it a standard U.S. domestic first class seat that you were in? It was a uh, pretty much a standard U.S. domestic first class seat. But what I found out actually on the way back is that all the trade tables are in the arms. And you know how in the front seats in most of your in, in almost any class or service, the trade tables unfold from the arm. But in normally the trade table comes from in front of you. All the first class seats have a trade table unfolding from the arm. Now they do have a little fold out space for a couple of drinks in the middle, but the trade tables unfold from the arm and the back of the seat has, um, the back of the first class seat or the ascent seat has a place to put your tablet or your cell phone if you want to be watching, uh, a video or if you want to just have a place to put it down. It's set up so that you can, you can angle it. They didn't have that where I was because I was right behind the bulkhead, but I had plenty of room. The seats reclined. There was a footrest that came out that if you put your seat back, your feet could go up and you could recline considerably, not lie flat, but very comfortably. Although I didn't, I was looking out the window the whole time. Yeah, the best form of in-flight entertainment, isn't it? And it was great on the way down because we flew over the Chesapeake Bay Tunnel Bridge. For those of you that don't know, that goes over Chesapeake Bay and it's not just a bridge. It goes into a tunnel. It's very, very long. It goes from Virginia to Delaware. And the reason it goes into a tunnel is because the naval shipyard, Newport Naval Shipyard is down there. And the big ships, aircraft carriers, battleships, et cetera, need to get in and out. And it, the bridge would have to be way too high to do it. So they made it a combination of a bridge and a tunnel. And it was great to see it at night because all of a sudden this all lit up area went dark. And then it lit up <laughs> on the other side of the tunnel. And as a kid, I would do family vacations to North Carolina. So driving between New Jersey and North Carolina, we would go across the Chesapeake Bay Bridge and tunnels. And yeah, it's really a spectacular feat of engineering, I think. So seeing it from the air, that must have been nice. It was. And then also to go over the Newport, the shipyard was just amazing, too, to see those all those aircraft carriers and ships lit up at night. Pretty fabulous. So as far as service on board, the flight attendants... How are they? Well, flight attendant one took care of just ascent class. And ascent class is, now I can't quite remember if it's three or four rows. I think it's four rows. So it's a, comp, a possible combination of uh, 16 people. 
And she was great. Absolutely amazing. I had a great service. Mostly I had seltzer and uh, and you had savory snacks, mostly either salty or sweet things, nothing really satisfying. And I hadn't eaten dinner, but that was okay. I wasn't particularly hungry. So there was no food that was served on board in Ascent class? Oh, no meal. No, you could order some kind of sandwich platter or cheese platter uh, and, and pay for that in Ascent class, but it wasn't anything that I wanted. And I don't think anybody ordered it. I didn't see one come by. But there were plenty of chips, as much as you wanted, if you if you wanted that, all sorts of other savory snacks, number of different candies, uh, peanut M&Ms in particular, a great big bag of them if you wanted those. Again, as much as you wanted, not something I was really into. And I think there were a couple of like uh, fruit and nut kind of bars, sort of soft, doughy kinds of things that were available. I just had some seltzer water, except toward the end, I saw Bailey's Irish cream come out and I couldn't <laughs> help myself. I was just in the mood and I said can I get another seltzer water and a Bailey's Irish cream? And the flight attendant said, you want me to mix that? I said, no, no. <laughs> yeah, really? I just want a Bailey's Irish cream straight up and a seltzer water because I'm thirsty. Good, good, good. Now, what about in the back of the plane? Do you know how they handle the folks in coach over food offerings? The same items were available, but they needed to be paid for. They needed to be paid for with a credit card. There was no cash on board and you could buy it if you were in the back. Uh, I believe they offered water for free. Not 100% sure, but I could see them going through with the cart and, and offering that and people buying drinks. Now, did the flight attendants know that you were on a review flight or did they think you were normal, regular paying passenger? They had no idea I was on a review flight. Okay. And good. I'm really glad of that. I'm really happy. They did know I was non-rev, but I, they had no idea why. So I don't think it was really an issue. And they didn't treat me any differently from any of the other passengers that I was sitting with or next to. Uh, their service was really good. Yeah, I think that's really good that they didn't treat you any differently. So that way you could get really the full experience and share your honest thoughts on how they treated you and how the flight went. The only passengers they treated a little differently were the two French bulldogs that were also <laughs> in row one on the other side. Oh, and there no. was an, another dog in the back. Uh, the Bulldogs, the French Bulldogs were very well behaved. There was nothing to complain about other than I don't like having animals traveling in the passenger cabin. I don't think it's really appropriate. Well, were they service dogs or? No. Were, so they were pets they were traveling. Pets. Yeah. They were pets traveling in, in, in the passenger cabin. And, you know, it's a good thing I'm not allergic to dogs or nobody else was. I just don't think it's necessarily appropriate. But other people do, and uh, I'm, I'm willing to discuss that if anybody wants to write in, and I hope I haven't offended anyone with it. If I have offended you, it's I am really offended at yahoo.com. I just don't think that pets are designed to be flying on an aircraft. I also think it's dangerous for a pet, a, a pet, especially a French bulldog that has such a short snout. They have trouble breathing when the air pressure goes down. Were these dogs in cages? And if so, if they were in row one, how did that work? Because I thought dogs had to be in cages. Not in cages. They put down a blanket for them that I don't believe the owners of the dogs needed to, but they did to make them comfortable. And they were not in cages. They were just on a leash and they were between the front seat and the bulkhead. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. So you get to Tampa. What do you think of Tampa Airport? I was lost when I first got down there. I had no idea how the Tampa Airport worked and there weren't a lot of signs. Now, we got in around 930 at night, so it was pretty empty. And I didn't know where I was going. And for those that don't know, because I certainly learned, the Tampa Airport 
is three different terminals, more or less, or three different areas. It's all connected by a train. There's the terminal where you get in. Then you take a train to the terminal where there are ticket counters, et cetera, and so on, and luggage claim. And then there's another terminal that goes off into where the parking area is and where rental cars is. I did have wheelchair set up to be there for me because I wasn't sure how much I would have to walk. And as you know, I've been having issues that way, although my back's gotten better and I didn't need the wheelchair. So I walked on my own, but I was walking next to another person with a wheelchair who was able to direct me and I got to the right place, picked up my rental car, never been to the Tampa area before, was trying to figure out how to drive this Ford. I haven't driven an American car in years and found my way across the bay to Largo and to my hotel. The Tampa airport, I guess once you've been there once, it's actually really easy because the terminal building is a giant square and you have the red side and the blue side. And it doesn't really matter what airline you're flying on. Once you're in the square, the main terminal building, and you check in, you then take an escalator upstairs, and then they have the satellite concourses where the gates are, and you take a train out to them. And they're adding on, so I don't know currently if there are four or five satellite areas. And then, like you said, there's the way to get to the car rental, well, either long-term parking or the car rental area. But I find it really a very convenient airport to get around simply because it's a square. And now that I know it, absolutely no problem. But to come into it as a brand new traveler, not knowing anything about it, I had no idea where to go. And I wish the signage was a little bit better. Or for me, it would have been nice to have the signage and next to it, a map so I could see where I was going. But again, these days, many people don't know how to read a map, so it might not work. Yeah, true. And did you get to see the flamingo? Not that I noticed. Okay. You would notice because this is a, I don't know, 30, 40 foot tall flamingo that they have in the airport. No, I don't think I saw it there. <laughs> okay. So you make it through the airport and to your hotel. Where did you stay in Tampa or actually in Largo? Uh, you Normally I take care of the ground and you take care of the air, but this time I took care of the air and you said, why don't you take the Holiday Inn Express in suites in Largo? And that's what I did. So picked up my car with uh, with budget rental. It was a few glitches. I, I was supposed to get a Toyota. I ended up getting a Ford. It was supposed to be one Ford and it ended up being another Ford because a person in, that was supposed to be in the car that I was in actually had a person in it. But anyway, it all worked out. I made my way to uh, across the bay and made my way to Largo, uh, stopping to grab something to eat and checked into the hotel. And how was the Holiday Inn? Because it's relatively new, if I recall. Yeah, I checked in and uh, it was packed. There was some kind of conference or something going on. And there was a whole group of people downstairs in the lobby eating and drinking and having fun. And I checked in and they recognized me as a platinum member. They assigned me to a room. I went into the room, went upstairs. One of the elevators was out. It ended up being the handicapped room. And uh, it was big and it was empty. And but I figured, OK, I'll be fine. And I put my bag down and walked into the bathroom and there was a bathtub, meaning that that room hadn't been renovated recently. And I looked in the bathtub and it looked to me like it was a feces stain, for lack of a better word, in the bathtub. Oh, no. I didn't know what it was. I didn't investigate any further. I hadn't unpacked my bag and I just went back downstairs. Uh, I explained what it was. They assigned me to another room. They were supposed to have offered me a suite because of my platinum membership, which they didn't. But that's OK. I got into the other room and it was fine. You know, the new hotels these days, rooms aren't carpeted. They're quite sparse. There's no real furniture in there other than maybe a chair and the desk. 
It was very echoey. The bed was comfortable. The bathroom was fine. It just wasn't a particularly warm room, if you know what I mean. It was very cold and uh, and not very welcoming, but it was fine. No problem. Yeah, I think they're doing that to make it easier to clean. Yeah. The carpeting absorbs a lot of stuff and having a hardwood floor or a laminate floor, a tile floor, just makes it so much easier and faster for the cleaning crew to get in and out. Now, speaking of cleaning, that was kind of interesting, too, because uh, I went downstairs Sunday morning for breakfast. I was up early and the breakfast at the Holiday Inn Express are just fine. It was very crowded, but food was fine. Nothing unusual, nothing, you know, to really write home about, but it was perfectly adequate and perfectly fine. But I happened to see the housekeeper on the way down and I asked her and she spoke English perfectly well. Not all housekeepers do in the Florida area or anywhere for that matter. And I said, will you be doing my room? And she said, yes, I will. And I said, well, that's great. Look, normally I leave something on the desk for you, but I see you here and I just want to thank you. And I handed her a tip. I handed her a couple of dollars to thank her for cleaning my room. I said, I'm not leaving just yet. I'll be back in a little bit and I'll be leaving probably around noontime. And she said, fine, I'll take care of it. So I went and I had my breakfast and I came back and I showered and got ready and left to get in the car to meet you. And then when I came back that evening, the room hadn't been touched. Oh, no. Now, I can understand when that happens. If the room isn't touched, I get a little upset. But okay, sometimes that happens. But I had just spoken with the housekeeper and I already had given her a gratuity and she still missed the room. Oh, boy. So I went back down to the desk and let them know and and they gave me some fresh towels, which is really all I needed. And, you know, I slept on the same lemon two nights in a row, which, again, I do that at home all the time anyway. But not what you expect in a hotel necessarily, unless they're giving you notice that that's going to happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's unfortunate. Gosh. But it was, everything was fine after that. There wasn't any problem uh, other than the Wi-Fi was incredibly slow. They knew they were having problems with it. Hadn't been fixed. Both elevators went out for a little bit. They knew they were having problems with it. Just little glitches that, you know, the people were great. I remember the names at the front desk. They were very apologetic. The other issue was that T-Mobile service was a little slow. Where I was at the Holiday Inn, every place else, it was super. Interesting. Yeah. You know what a fan I am of T-Mobile. I think they're great. But so I called T-Mobile and they said, oh, yeah, we've got an issue there. We're working on it. Our engineers are working on it. Yeah, but that doesn't help me right now. I'm here for four days. I need the service. How's your service everywhere else? Have you reset your phone? No, nothing to do with my phone. Done the troubleshooting. It's fine everywhere else. It's right here. Oh, yeah, we see it on the map. Anyway, T-Mobile did do the right thing. They credited me back some money toward my account and did the best they could. But I didn't want the money back. I wanted the service. Yeah, that's the problem sometimes. When you need service, you need service. And yeah, money doesn't solve the problem. Exactly. Now, we were there for a meetup, and we had a meetup at your pizza place. Not my pizza place, because I would have gone to a Chicago-style pizza place just to annoy you. <laughs> then we wouldn't have been at a pizza place anyway. <laughs> no, the name of the restaurant was your pizza place. And again, it shows that pizza can be different things in different places. The pizza was great. But it wasn't New York pizza. It was a completely different style of pizza that was very. No, tasty. it wasn't. You, it, yeah, oh, come on. It was. It was so very much like New York pizza. Anyway, about the meetup. Let's talk about the meetup. There was no way I could fold that slice in half. I did. No, you didn't. Yes, I did. I had two slices, folded both of them in half. Worked perfectly. 
All right. I'll give you that. <laughs> the meetup was great. Not only did we have your mom, your mom's friend, Linda, and your cousin, Don, but we had some real people that were listeners that came in to visit with us. There was Jay and there was Sean and there was Penny. And boy, were they fun. Yeah, we had a really good time talking with them. And as usual, the time went by way too fast and we really didn't have enough time to talk with everyone. It's really a shame. And, you know, there was just um, too much beer. No, there was never enough beer. It was good beer, though, even though I had some sort of fruity Lagunitas IPA, but I really enjoyed it. I figured I was in a tropical location. I needed a tropical beer. Yeah, and I work on my Chicago and I had a Goose Island IPA. Which I got to taste and was also very tasty. Yeah, it's good. Now, your check-in process on the flight home, how did that go? Absolutely perfect. Dropped off the car. No problem there. Knew exactly where I was going. Again, thought I was going to need a wheelchair. I had a reserve, but I didn't need it. I, I'm just able to walk better now, which is really good news. But hopped on the train to the one terminal, hopped on the train to the next terminal, went through TSA. Again, life could be a breeze. It wasn't breeze airways, but it was TSA. It was really simple. The pre-check went right through. My Swiss Army knife went right through, but this time, as long as I was already through and I saw a supervisor, I asked the supervisor about knives and what the rules were because you thought that they might have yeah. changed it where you can take a small blade. Apparently not. No blade whatsoever is allowed through regardless of the size, according to the TSA supervisor. Huh. And this really surprised me, and I didn't say anything about it being in my bag. I did say that in the past, I've had one in my bag. And it got through. He says, well, sometimes we miss it, but it's not supposed to be there at all. So that was good to know. Huh, yeah. So it's a good thing you didn't have it in your pocket and you did put it in your carry-on bag. Yeah. Although, you know what else was in my carry-on bag? You didn't. No, not a firearm. Oh, okay. I forgot I put two bottles of water in there. Oh, no. So I got stopped and they dumped it. Oh, okay. So they confiscated. They Yeah, it was just fine. And, I, and when they, they stopped me and... They pulled it out and I said, oh, yeah, I forgot. I apologize. I said, look, you can see they're totally sealed. It was Dasani water, which is a Coca-Cola product. I just happened to have it from the hotel. And I said, they're totally sealed. Please keep them, drink them. He said, We're not allowed. And I saw them go in the trash. Yep. That's that's where all good water bottles go to be disposed. But anyway, I got there, got down to the gate. Pulled up a chair, sat and watched the tarmac for a while. That was really nice. Mm -hmm. Got a Wi-Fi phone call from our good friend, Myla. Talked to her for a little bit. Oh, nice. And then boarded the airplane. And this time I was in row three. And uh, what well, was a different flight attendant, number one. But my previous flight attendant, number one, was in the back. And I got to see her, too. And again, flight attendant, number one, and everybody was very, very happy to have the Godiva chocolates because I brought another bag of Godiva chocolates to give to them on the way back. Let them know exactly what you say. I said, I'm giving this to you because you guys work really hard. And I'm one of those people that know that you're not here to kiss my ass. You're here to save it. And boy, did they get a charge out of that. So thank you for that. Exactly. Yeah, it's a great line. And then I went up to the flight deck and handed out some chocolates to the pilots. And it was the same pilot. It was Captain Chris who remembered me. And again, flight the other flight attendant remembered me, but Captain Chris remembered me. He said he flew me down, was very happy to have the chocolates. And we talked a little bit more about what I was doing. And I told him a little bit about the journey is reward and the airplane geeks podcast. And he said, Oh, he said, well, you know, I used to be the director of flight operations for breeze airways. 
And while that was fun and I really enjoyed it, I needed to get back into the air. So I'm back here in the left seat. And I thought that was fascinating that oh, nice. he was able to do that, but he loved to fly so much he didn't want to give it up. Wait, did you ask him to be on the show? I did not. I'm sorry oh, to say. Oh, come on. You need to have your, your field correspondent hat on at all times. Well, maybe if Breeze Airways hears this show, and we'll have to let them know about the review, that they can get in touch with Captain Chris for us and maybe ask him to be our guest again. Yeah, perfect. Now, what about Wi-Fi? Was it working on the flight back home? It wasn't that it was not working on either flight. They do not have Wi-Fi on certain of their aircraft. They haven't installed it on all of them. And this aircraft just wasn't equipped with it yet. It will be, and apparently their whole fleet will eventually have it. This one just hasn't been equipped with it yet. Okay, that makes sense. But you were able to use the flighty application. Yeah, I used it. Well, I used it in both ways just because I always track my flights that way. And and Breeze Airways has an app, just like United has an app, but Flighty is always much faster and much quicker. Now, there weren't any delays. There wasn't anything I needed to be alerted about. But this particular flight got in early. It was great. We were there about 20 minutes early. But the last Breeze Airways flight that was at our gate was delayed. It was a flight to Fort Myers. I don't know why it was delayed, but it was delayed. So we had to wait about 20 minutes. And I couldn't figure out why we were delayed. So I started using the Flighty app and I pulled up the flight that was going out while I'm on the ground. And I had a T-Mobile signal and it explained what was going on and how long it was going to be. And this was really good because I had a uh, my seatmate was a woman who was trying to rush home to get to her newborn child that was only three months old the first time she left him. And she was in tears because she was afraid the kid was going to be asleep before she got home. Oh, so wow. I was able to tell her why we were delayed, how long it would be, what was going on. And uh, and it really did help calm her down. I felt so bad for her. But Flighty app came through again. And again, we are not advertising for Flighty. But if you're flying... It's definitely worth putting that app on your phone. It's free the first time. And I think after that, it's $9 a month. And you don't have to subscribe for the whole year. You can subscribe from month to month and cancel at any time. It's really a worthwhile app. Yeah, I like it a lot as well. And it sounds like you had a really good time on on Breeze. So you'd recommend flying on them. Absolutely. I think that Breeze Airways is exactly what you want to find in an airline. It's not fancy, but they have great service. They are really are trying to be the nice, low-cost airline. Their prices are phenomenal. But if you have a choice between flying Breeze and any other airline, I would probably at this point take Breeze over any of the major carriers. Besides United, I've flown on New Pacific and I've flown on Avello. And I've said that Avello is the airline that I want to love. really sounds like Breeze is the airline that you do love. You know, it truly is. Because New Pacific and Avello are both low-cost carriers, and they they have a place, and they're doing well. And I know you enjoyed your flights on them. Mm-hmm. But Breeze Airways, from what I have seen, is you can't go wrong. They are really trying to be the nice carrier, and they seem to really take care of their people as well as taking care of their passengers. Yeah, that's absolutely fantastic. And I, I actually do, especially after listening to you talk about them, look forward to flying on them. Well, going through my head the whole time I was flying is, I don't know if you remember the song, uh, Shaboom, Life Could Be a Dream, Shaboom. (laughs) Going through my head was, life could be a breeze, and life is a breeze when you're flying with them. So anything else about breeze that the listeners should know? You know, I think we've covered it all. I don't know if I could be any more glowing. 
I don't think there's a need to be any more glowing. And what I say is really what I feel. As our listeners know, I don't hand out compliments a whole lot. But when I do, they're sincere. And Breeze was just sincerely a wonderful way to fly. So from Portland, Maine, this is your main man, Micah. And this is your global traveler, Brian. Fly safely. Now, the meetup at Your Pizza Shop. Uh, Note that you'll hear listener Sean refer to the APG podcast. So to clear up some possible confusion, here's a little story on that. In the beginning of the Airplane Geeks podcast, we often referred to ourselves as APG, Airplane Geeks. But then we saw that the Airline Pilot Guy podcast called themselves APG. So that was a problem. But they had naming rights since their acronym was more accurate. So we started calling ourselves AGP, Airplane Geeks Podcast. Confused? Yeah, me too. Well, you guys, Max, Rob, David, Max, yeah, we're at your pizza place. Yeah, no, I know. It's not your pizza place. It's a pizza place called your pizza place here in Largo, Florida. So, Brian, we're actually having the meetup, and you brought some people with you. I know. Isn't this incredible that people actually showed up to our meetup? I think it's absolutely fabulous, but you know what's amazing? I mean, your mom had to come, and we'll talk to her in a minute. And I suppose Linda, who hangs out with your mom, had to come too, but... You had a cousin that actually showed up. Friends and family. It's all important about friends and family to fill the audience. So, Cousin Dawn, did you have any idea that you were going to face all these people here when you showed up to see your Aunt Dolores? No, I did not. And what do you think about this kind of group? It's very interesting and entertaining to watch. Cousin Dawn really doesn't want to talk to us. But that's all right, because we have Mama Coleman, and Mama Coleman is absolutely fabulous. What did you expect when you came here? Did you think there was going to be anything like this kind of meetup and people showing up? No, I didn't. It was another surprise in Brian's long list of surprises. But aren't aviation people fun? Yes, absolutely. Now, Linda, you knew this was going to happen, and I know you have your mouth full now, but I'll give you time to swallow while I vamp. But that's all right. Did you expect that we were going to get people to show up just to come meet me and Brian and you guys? No, I never expected it. I thought he was crazy. (laughs) And one of the things that's amazing, and I don't know if you could ever hear any of that conversation, aviation people really hang together. Did you have any idea how that works? No, not until I talked to you two guys together today. I didn't know that it was like one big happy family and that everybody watched everybody else's podcasts and knows each other. I think this is great. It's kind of like hangar talk. You're just meeting new old friends all the time. Uh, I'm going to listen to more podcasts. Well, you're one of us now. Thanks so much for being here. See, Michael, we've converted another. Let's ask Jay a question. How are the wings? The wings are fantastic, Micah. Well, that's good to hear. But we've got... And we've got a wonderful waitress here, too. And she's bringing incredible-looking subs. Wow, they have more than pizza. Jay, you drove up. I got an email from you saying you were coming. Described who you were. You walked in the door. I knew exactly who you were. And then we found out we have a main connection. Tell us a little bit about the main connection. We do. We have a main connection, for sure. My, um, my parents are both from Maine. 
Uh, I was born and raised in Maine and Portland and uh, spent some time living in Biddeford when I was young as a kid and then up in Aroostook County. Um, and talking about aviation, uh, my passion for aviation started in Frenchville, Maine at Foxtrot Victor Echo, uh, where I worked in high school uh, as a line guy. I was the only person there at the airport. I would uh, rent out the one rental car that we had, and I would go out and fuel up the airplanes when it was 20 below zero with blowing wind, I'm climbing the ladder, uh, putting 100 low lead into the wings. And, uh, and I worked in exchange for flight instruction up there. And I was very fortunate and blessed to be able to, uh, to solo uh, when I was 16 years old in 1994, I believe in May. I have the newspaper clipping that my mom, uh, my mom saved. And, and that's where my passion for aviation really began. And over the years, I've been able to get my private, my instrument, my multi-engine rating. I've been able to share uh, a Bonanza airplane with a good friend of mine in Pennsylvania, which is where uh, we lived for the last 17 years, um, almost as beautiful as Maine is. Um, I, I, we'll talk about that later. <laughs> yep. but, uh, but now I'm just enjoying uh, being here, meeting uh, Micah and Brian and, uh, and the rest of the folks that have come out to just talk about their passion of aviation and airplanes, and uh, it's just a, it's great to finally meet you guys. I've been... Um, listening to you guys for a long time. You do great work. Well, thank you, and thanks for coming. And then we have listener Sean. And, Sean, you're also a private pilot. And where did you hear about this crazy meetup? heard about this on APG. It was, uh, what, I guess two weeks ago we uh, mentioned this. And I've, I'll be honest, I haven't listened a little bit because I've been too busy trying to get my uh, ratings done here. But, um, yeah, I've been listening on there since about uh, 2015, I think it was, episode uh, somewhere in the 90s. So, Now, you had mentioned that APG is the most expensive podcast you ever listened to. Can you kind of... That, that, that's a little interesting st- statement to be making. Oh, yeah. This is the, the, the whole idea of the coffee fund, that's a gateway drug. That, that, that's, what they, that, that's just the introduction. Is eventually, you listen long enough, you start looking at these planes and want to get on them. Then you realize you want to fly them. That's when it gets expensive. So you're on your way to your PPL at this point? Is that what's going on? Yeah, at this point, just need to get the uh, written done because all the testing centers were closed for COVID. So I got, got written, get the check ride, and then uh, get, the, you know, get my PPL, and after that, straight to instrument. We mentioned that you brought your incredibly wonderful fiancé with you, Penny. Now, Penny, are you going to talk with us? Yes, you are. You really need to. And I'm going to even let Jay hold the microphone. And the question I need to ask you, Penny, is how do you put up and decide you're going to marry a man that's going to be spending all this time learning to fly and flying? Because I love to travel. And so I like the idea that when we actually get on the plane, it's on our time and not on the commercial flight's time. So if we want to just decide, hey, let's go up to Niagara Falls and get some poutine, we can just get on the plane and go up to Niagara Falls and get us some poutine. Or if we want to go get some um, gumbo in uh, New Orleans, we can go get some gumbo in New Orleans. It's all on our time and not on Delta's or any of the other commercial flights. Well, I can't help you with the gumbo, but (laughs) if you want to come up to Maine, we can find some poutine, can't we? What do you say, Jay? You can find poutine in Biddeford? Oh, absolutely. Very good. Correct. Hey, you guys, thank you so much for coming to the meetup. It just once again proves that aviation brings people together. So nice to have you here. Longtime listener and friend of the podcast, Martin Kemp, recorded a piece describing how he got into aviation. Martin is head of integrated EFB, commercial aviation, with Jeppesen and Forflight, 
a Boeing company. The Ride of My Life How I Got Started in Aviation. Sometimes there are experiences that change your life, and I wanted to share one of mine with you. My name is Martin Kemp, and I was flying before I was born. My dad was in the Royal Air Force, and my mum flew gliders while pregnant with me. However, it was a later exposure to flying that led me to my current flight path. Two years after we had our first child, my wife booked a weekend away in Vegas for Father's Day weekend. She surprised me with a fly along with Sky Combat Ace in an extra 330 aerobatic plane. When we arrived there, they had us watch a short safety video. The instructor then asked me, do you have flight experience? Without missing a beat, I proudly answered that I had flown flight simulator when I was a kid. Forget that that was 30 years ago, and on a Commodore 64, and with limited controls. To my shock, and the horrified look on my wife's face, the instructor said, excellent, that will do. He asked me if I wanted the Top Gun experience. Well, who could pass up that opportunity? We suited up, and he briefed me through the manoeuvres on the ground. Of course, none of it really stuck in, but that did not stop me from striding out to the plane like I was a tall Tom Cruise. I slipped into the plane, and off we went. I can admit now that I had no idea what I had signed up for. I hadn't really gone to an air show or seen stunt planes in real life. I don't think anything could have prepared me for what happened over the next half hour. As we cruised over the desert and past the mountains, he asked me what I wanted to do. I reached into every corner of my mind, and the best I could come up with was that I wanted to fly upside down. I could almost hear the smirk over the headset, as I'm sure he had heard this request countless times before. But in the next moment we were upside down, I cannot explain how amazing this feeling was, but that was just the beginning. He then asked if I wanted to take the controls. There I was flying a half million dollar plane. He guided me through a couple of turns, loops and rolls. Then I heard his grin as he said, do you want to see what this baby can do? Now I was the air show. We did rolls, loops, hammerheads, spins and tumbles. And then he turned the smoke on and looped me to fly back through it. I couldn't explain half the things he made that plane do. Some of it seemed beyond what it should do. As we exited the aircraft, I heard my wife say, wow, you have a smile on your face. I said, of course, that was the ride of my life. She said, not you, your instructor. I looked back and indeed he was grinning from ear to ear. I found out that he was going to be doing a check ride later that day and so had the opportunity to practice with me strapped to the airplane. He clearly loved what he was doing and his passion was contagious. Fast forward to five years later and I'm interviewing with Forflight, the leading supplier of electronic flight bag software for pilots of all types. They were looking for a product manager who was a pilot to manage their alliance with Jeppesen, the leading supplier of navigation charts and data. I had tons of experience in product management for mobile apps and was a software developer. And as you heard previously, I had flown flight simulators as a kid. I figured it worked for me once before. I would give it another shot. Believe it or not, I was asked to join the company. I would like to think that my desire to fly uh, was the final tipping point. But seriously, I'm eternally grateful to the hiring manager, Andy Mag, who saw my potential and Forflight for providing stipends to foster flight training. I've now been a pilot for six years and fly a Cherokee 6, which I refer to as the beast. I work every day with Forflight and Jefferson to provide tools that make flying safer and more efficient for private, commercial, business and military pilots. It is my goal to share that same passion for flying that was shared with me and make it contagious. It's been the ride of my life, and I'm so pleased to have my family come along with it. 
To paraphrase Top Gun, remember, folks, there are no points for second place. That's a great story. Thanks for doing that, Martin. And we'll hear more from Martin shortly. But first, our main man, Micah, tells a story about family and flying. He calls it a family matriarch Christmas. You know, Max, for seven years now, I've been participating in the Plain Talking UK Christmas show. Mm, Yes. And I love those guys, and I love the Christmas shows, and we did it again this year. And for seven years, I've been writing the Christmas story for the Plain Talking UK Christmas show. Now, there's something pretty interesting about that. Do you know what that is? No. I don't celebrate Christmas. Oh, I should have figured that out. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) But seven years in a row, I've been doing the Christmas story, and this year was no exception. So... That's really funny, Micah. The more I think about it, that's really funny. I kind of find it interesting, too. And, yeah, sorry and some to of the, yeah. That's okay. Some of the stories I've come up well, you've heard a couple of them. Yeah, yeah. This year was no exception. And this story aired on the Plain Talking UK Christmas show that I think came out the same day, or will be coming out the same day that we'll be coming out with our Christmas show. But our version has one more paragraph because in a lot of this Christmas story, I talk about my mom and... Harriet was a guest on the show even before I was. That's right. Harriet was our octogenarian listener. And when we discovered that uh, there was uh, this 80, was she 80 or more than she 80 was, or close to 80? I think she was in her 80s. I can't remember exactly. but And I mentioned that to in, a, in an email that I wrote. And do you remember what Rob said? Mm, no. That's a demographic we want. 80-year-old women <laughs> listening to our show. Yeah, and as I recall, she listened because, in large part, because um, she just loved us guys. She was, well, she did, and she loved airplanes. She loved aircraft. She loved flying, and uh, and we would listen as we would travel together because I that was back before I they were iPhones. I would download the show and put it on a CD and listen to it on a CD in the car. Yes. So anyway, there's a little bit about my mom in the beginning, but this story, well, you'll hear it. All right, here it is. So some of you know my airplane geek of a mother, Harriet. She was invited to be a phone-in guest on the Airplane Geeks three times that I can find, but I think more than that. In fact, she was on the Geeks before I ever made an appearance, all due to Rob Mark sticking his foot in his mouth. Now, I've mentioned on a number of occasions that I always thought I became an Airplane Geek due to my father, and assumed that my mom just put up with my dad and me talking airplanes. My mom, Harriet, loved literature and taught English to middle and high school students. She loved opera and theater and attended both regularly. In fact, for a while, she had seen every show on Broadway, regularly going into the city to catch two shows a day on the weekends. Harriet was an art lover, was a member of museums all over the world, and she never missed a Dodge Poetry Festival. She was a true lover of classic culture. Harriet was always taking classes and loved learning throughout her life. She was ABD, meaning she would have had a PhD had she wanted to take the time to write a dissertation, but she was too busy with the rest of her life to do so. The degree itself never really meant anything to her. She took classes for the mere love of learning. On top of all this, my mom was an amazing cook. Whether it was traditional Jewish cuisine, fine Italian and European dishes, even Chinese, 
my mom's kitchen skills were just unreal. But as I alluded to earlier, it turned out my mom was also an airplane geek all her life. She wasn't putting up with me and my dad when we would talk about airplanes together. She enjoyed it, although I didn't really learn that until later in her life. While visiting my cousin in Florida, he pulled out a picture of Harriet that was taken in 1933. She was only three years old, and there she was, standing in front of a gate at Floyd Bennett Field, looking at some yet-to-be-identified aircraft. But it wasn't until I ended up flying with my mom open cockpit in a new standard D-25 at the old Rhinebeck Aerodrome that I found out what an airplane geek she really was. You probably already heard that story, and if you haven't, you can find it on Airplane Geeks episode 339 in the piece I call Lose Flight of Fancy. That open cockpit flight really set her free as the airplane geek she really was. After that new standard D-25 open cockpit flight, whenever we would drive down Route 95, parallel to the Rhineways of EWR or PHL, she would get so excited to see a big hulking jetliner turn into a graceful bird that she would almost giggle like a kid. She loved flying and had flown all over the world on airliners. She flew several times with my cousin in Cessna 172s and 182s. My mom even managed to get in the left seat of a helicopter a couple of times. You can hear about that in the story Harriet's Helicopter Pilot on Airplane Geeks episode 324. My mom Harriet was a true renaissance woman. Harriet passed over a decade ago now. I can't believe it's been so long because, in many ways, she's still with me every day. But that's not what I'm writing about today. Today I want to tell you about my Aunt Jerry, Harriet's younger sister. After Harriet passed, Jerry, who never had any children, was left as the family matriarch. Aunt Jerry was just the opposite of Harriet. She was into fashion and the latest trends, had little interest in education, literature, theater, nor opera, didn't really care to travel, and preferred to stay at home. Now, my mom and both of her sisters were beautiful, and I'm not just saying this as a devoted son and nephew. Martha, Harriet, and Jerry were all very attractive women and all had their own style, but it was Jerry that followed fashion. In the 1960s and 70s, she would wear what I guess was called smoky eye makeup, sometimes called Persian eyes, and she was always decked to the nines. She looked just like Sophia Loren, and that's saying something. Being the youngest sister by seven years, as I grew up, she was known in the family, even by her sisters, as the young hot aunt. Aunt Jerry dropped out of high school at 16 and went to hairdressing school. At that point in her life, she had already been dating the man who became my Uncle Ralph for almost four years. Six years later, they were married when he was honorably discharged from the Marine Corps. She had been working as a hairdresser the whole time and had saved enough to put a down payment on a house in Massapequa, New York. I wrote a bit about my Uncle Ralph on a piece I did for the Airline Pilot Guy, episode 196, called A Community of Passion. Now, Uncle Ralph was a devoted Catholic, something that you can imagine did not go over well with my grandparents. But after seriously dating for close to a decade, even right through his hitch in the Marines, Grandma Lee and Grandpa Sam were not only able to accept Uncle Ralph, but really found that they loved him. He was a great guy. Aunt Jerry's dedication to Uncle Ralph was quite unique, and that was another way she was different from my mom, her sister Harriet. While I know Aunt Jerry never gave up on her personal identity as a Jew, 
she didn't really follow any of the traditions and, in fact, adopted Uncle Ralph's Italian Catholic heritage. Now that I think about it, I wonder if that was why she modeled herself, intentionally or not, after Sophia Loren. When Aunt Jerry and Uncle Ralph lived in Massapequa, she would put together Christmas at her house as the huge celebration it is in the Gentile world. She would throw a big party, had the household decorated with a tree and holly and mistletoe, the whole Megillah, and she would then cook a huge traditional Italian feast. There was antipasta, manicotte, baked ziti, brajol, chicken cacciatore, veal scallopini, and so much more. There were presents for the kids and for the adults, assorted cocktails and wines and beer. My mom and dad would pack up me and my brothers and drive out to Long Island from New Jersey for what would be a three-day event. Christmas Eve was travel day, and we would stay overnight at my grandparents' house. On Christmas Day, we'd head to Aunt Jerry and Uncle Ralph's after breakfast for the celebration, then return to my grandparents' for the night before heading back to New Jersey on Boxing Day. It was a huge celebration. We'd gather around the tree and exchange gifts as different guests would drop by, coming and going, visiting for a short time, or joining the all-day party. Dinner would be served around 2 p.m. It was always an amazing feast of wonderful dishes that I didn't have any other time of the year. Eventually dinner would be over, and most of the men would gather in the back room where they would smoke and drink and play pinochle with some sports game on the black and white. Color TV was a luxury back then. The women would gather in the kitchen and start cleaning up. I know, very chauvinistic, but that's how it was in the early to mid-60s, and no one thought the better of it. Eventually, sometime around 1968 or 69, Aunt Jerry and Uncle Ralph moved to Florida, where Jerry continued to work as a hairdresser, and Uncle Ralph opened a gas station. This was back when cars were regularly repaired by a local mechanic. Uncle Ralph sold that service station to open up a junkyard, what we now refer to as an auto salvage or used parts shop. Ultimately, he and Aunt Jerry started their own business, selling and repairing antiques, curios, and collectibles. That was when my only family Christmas experience ended, as no one in my family but Aunt Jerry and Uncle Ralph celebrated the holiday. It really was my only family Christmas holiday experience as a child and was very influential on me. But this is an airplane podcast, so let's get to talking flying. Yes, there's a connection, a big one, in fact. As John Ostrower says, there's always an aviation angle. You see, although a Marine and stationed on aircraft carriers in the Mediterranean in the 1950s, Uncle Ralph hated flying. He was terrified of it, although he wouldn't admit his fear. After his discharge, he and Jerry flew to Acapulco sometime in the early 1960s, but that was the last time he was ever on an airplane. My cousin Mitchell, Ralph's nephew, the GA pilot Harriet would fly with and someone Uncle Ralph trusted, offered to take him flying many times. He told Ralph that he could perform the pre-flight with him to see just how well the aircraft was maintained. He could open the cowling and use his mechanic skills to inspect the engine to see just how well it was put together. Mitchell even told Ralph that they could just take off, go once around the pattern and land if he felt uncomfortable in the air. But Ralph was not going for it. There was no way he was going to get into one of those contraptions. Jerry, again, being the opposite of her older sister Harriet, was also afraid to fly. Really hated it, but could overcome her fears at times if it was really necessary. 
She managed to make it to my brother's wedding in Richmond, Virginia, in 1992, but she didn't fly again until 2012, when she flew to New Jersey with my cousin Mitchell and his wife, her niece and nephew, to visit Harriet in the hospital. But both of these flights were without Ralph. He simply wouldn't get on a plane. Ralph passed about two years to the day after Harriet did. Jerry was devastated, as you can imagine, but eventually rose to the challenge of living alone for the first time in her life. She also grew just a bit more daring. Jerry had never flown GA, but knowing how much her older sister Harriet loved to fly with her nephew, my cousin Mitchell, asked him to take her for a flight. Mitchell was delighted. He wanted our Aunt Jerry to experience the joy of flying. They took a short ride in a 172 from Palm Beach County Airport up to the Jupiter Inlet in Florida and back. Aunt Jerry called me as soon as she got home from the flight. It was great, she said. I mean, scary, but I'm so glad I did it. I could feel Harriet holding my hand, telling me it was going to be okay. But I knew that she was right there, holding the plane up and wasn't going to let anything happen. Mitchell offered to take Aunt Jerry flying quite a few more times, but Jerry wasn't going for it. She said she had the experience, was glad she did, and that was enough for her. But the experience helped embolden her, and she decided to take another trip. For years, Uncle Ralph had talked about his experience in the U.S. Marine Corps while on carrier duty in the Mediterranean. Jerry had pictures of him during that time, as they used to write back and forth while he was enlisted. One of those photos was of him lighting a cigarette from the top of Mount Etna. Please note, I did not say lighting a cigarette from the top of Mount Etna. I said from Mount Etna. Yes, from the hot ground itself. After hearing all those stories most of her life, Aunt Jerry wanted to see some of Italy and Sicily herself. She and a friend booked a flight to and a cruise around Italy. She knew she would having a bit more of a luxury cruise than what Uncle Ralph experienced on the USS Carl C. and the USS Franklin D. Roosevelt. But at least she would see some of the same places, even if it was almost 70 years later. Though she knew she would be traveling in luxury, Aunt Jerry was still really anxious about going. I was able to calm her down. Actually, we were all together. It was our podcast family that stepped in. Our good friend, Dispatcher Mike, made a special point of monitoring her flights. And listener, Jenny in Rome, told me to give Aunt Jerry her phone number. And if anything were to happen to her anywhere in Italy, she would be there to help. This calmed Aunt Jerry down enough to actually go through with the trip. She had a fabulous time, as we all knew she would, and there was no need for anyone to step in and assist her. I wish you could have heard the excitement in her voice when she told me all about her adventure. I'm not sure if she was more thrilled seeing everything Uncle Ralph had told her about over the years they were together, or because she was actually able to do it and travel all that way on her own. A few years later, in September of 2019, my cousin Mitchell and his wife, Amy, made plans to visit me up here in Maine. Mitchell wanted the opportunity to fly over the Maine coast, so he had me research and arrange for a rental at a local FBO, and to also find a local CFI from that FBO to hire to come along so we wouldn't need to have a local checkout flight. Now Mitchell's wife, Amy, is afraid to fly GA, and Mitchell usually flies a Cessna 172 or 182, but told me specifically to get a 182 this time. I questioned him about it as there was considerably more cost to the larger aircraft, but he said he wanted the extra power and would feel more comfortable flying the 182. I did as he asked and set it up with Southern Maine Aviation at SFM, 
Sanford Seacoast Regional Airport. Mitchell and Amy arrived at the Portland Jetport on a Monday afternoon, rented a car, and headed to their hotel. I picked them up in the early evening to take them out to dinner, and they had a surprise for me. I got out of the car and walked into the hotel lobby, and sitting at a table, drinking a cup of coffee, was Aunt Jerry. Apparently, she decided she wanted to make her first ever visit to Maine to see me. What a wonderful surprise! The next day, we drove from Portland down to the Sanford Airport. It seemed that Mitchell wanted the 182 because Aunt Jerry had decided to come along with us. She wanted to fly GA with me, and I was delighted. We walked out to the airplane, and I climbed into the back seat on the right side. I figured I would get things arranged and then help Aunt Jerry into the plane by offering her a hand from the inside. Apparently a hand was not enough. Aunt Jerry couldn't make the first step. We got a stool out of the FBO, but this didn't help her. She just could not get herself up on the step. Eventually Mitchell got inside the plane, and I got behind, and I've got to say this was rather embarrassing for me. As with Jerry bent over, there was no place to push from other than a place where you just don't want to grab your aunt, especially the young hot one. But we finally managed to get Jerry into the back of the 182. We taxied out to the run-up area, Mitchell in the left seat, the instructor in the right, as we went over our flight plan. We decided to fly north along the coast of Portland, make the harbor visual into PWM, and do a touch-and-go on 2-9, then head further north to Lambert Point in Freeport, right where the Royal and Cousins River converge, then circle over a friend's house, and then return to Sanford. We took off from Sanford on 2-5 and turned left, heading east toward Wells Beach. We turned north and followed the coast of Portland, making sure to avoid the TFRs over the bush compound in Kennebunkport. Although no longer in office, flying over former President Bush's main home is not allowed. Aunt Jerry, being on the left side of the aircraft, was facing the coast and was looking out the window as we flew north. I could see she was frightened, and she felt nauseous. I handed her a pure peppermint drop that I knew would help settle her stomach and give her something else to think about as I took her hand. As we flew north, I tried to point out the sights I recognized, including the famous Cliff House in Biddeford, two lights in Cape Elizabeth, perhaps most famous from the Edward Hopper paintings, Fort Williams and the Portland Headlight, a lighthouse commissioned by George Washington, the Spring Point Ledge Lighthouse, and as we turned west into Portland Harbor on approach to 2-9, then we could see Bug Light, the tanker ships docked in the harbor, and the tank farms they supply. After consultation with the tower at PWM, we decided to do a low approach rather than touch and go. ATC was very helpful and courteous and mentioned that a low approach would be more convenient for them, and we were happy to comply. Aunt Jerry had calmed down. Her breathing was easier, and she seemed to be enjoying herself. That was until we cut down on the throttle to make our approach. With the change in the engine sound and the angle on the plane, she started to get scared again and began squeezing my hand tightly. She may have been 82 years old, but she had some grip when she was scared. I explained what we were doing, and she calmed down and slowly eased her grip. That was until we were about 10 feet off the runway, and the engine came roaring back to life. The blood flow to my hand seemed to stop. She grabbed it so tightly, I couldn't believe it. Once again, I told her what we were doing. As we gained altitude, turned right to head north, and then turned northeast again to find and follow the coast to Yarmouth. So here I am, in the back right seat of the aircraft, looking out of what I could see of the windscreen ahead of me, from the back seat, 
and the left window next to Aunt Jerry to try to find landmarks so I can navigate and direct my cousin Mitchell to my friend's house on Casco Bay near the mouth of the Cousins River. Frankly, I was amazed at myself. I had never flown over this area before and was only familiar with it from the ground. But with my knowledge and lifelong love of maps, something I like to look at regularly, I was able to figure out where we were, locate landmarks on the coastline and certain islands, and found our way over the bay to our destination. As an aside, with the way people are now trained on phones and GPS systems, I wonder how many would be able to do that, having not learned from maps and reading atlases. How many of you non-pilots would be able to locate yourself in the air without the help of satellite navigation? The whole magenta line thing comes into my thoughts. Maybe I should have been a navigator. Anyway, we turned left and flew a figure-eight circle to the right so I could get some photos and video out of my window. I learned the hard way that when using an iPhone as a camera and holding it horizontally, the camera lens is on the bottom right, meaning it's easy to partially obscure it with a finger. Oh, well. We made three circles and turned back south and followed the coast back until we turned west just north of Wells to head back to Sanford. After landing, we headed into the FBO, settled up, and left to go out to dinner. It was a wonderful flight and a great day. In reflecting on it, I've been quite fortunate in that I've had the opportunity to fly with quite a few family members. Many of you already know that my first flight ever on a Delta DC-8 was with my grandfather and that it was his first flight too. I flew commercial with my brother Rick a couple of times, once to Florida and to London with the whole family, once to Memphis, just him and me, and once with Cousin Mitchell through the Hudson River Corridor. But those are stories for another time. I got to fly GA with my father, my mother, and my cousin Mitchell, and with this flight around Maine, also with my Aunt Jerry. But flying with Aunt Jerry was a bit different from all the others. She was the only one who was truly fearful of flying and worked up the courage to do it so she could have the experience with me. I'm really glad she did. But Aunt Jerry's inability to climb into the airplane on her own should have been a signal to me and my cousin Mitchell. Over the next two and a half years, she got progressively weaker until Christmas Eve 2022, when Mitchell went to pick her up at her house to take her out to dinner and found her on the floor. He took her to hospital, and a month later she was gone. Since my mom passed, Aunt Jerry and I would talk on the phone at least three times a week. I would always tease her when she answered and ask her how my young hot aunt was doing. She would joke back and tell me that she wasn't that aunt anymore, but I could tell that she loved me calling her that, and that I always thought of her that way. Things feel a bit empty not being able to pick up the phone and call Aunt Jerry anymore. She was the last of my parents' generation that I had left in my life. I have a hard time contemplating the fact that I am now a part of the oldest generation of my extended family. But every so often, I think about our flight in the back of the 182 and how wonderful it was to be able to share that special time. Flying is really a wonderful thing. So this Christmas, I'm thinking of Aunt Jerry. I'm thinking about her Christmas parties and the baked ziti. I'm thinking about her flights and cruise to see Italy and Sicily. And I'm thinking about last Christmas Eve when Cousin Mitchell found her on the floor in her house and had to take her to hospital and not out for Christmas dinner. It's a bit of a melancholy Christmas for me. So do me a favor. When you drink your Christmas wassail this year, lift your glass and toast Aunt Jerry with me. And know that this year, she's celebrating Christmas with Uncle Ralph, 
for the first time in close to a decade. For the Airplane Geeks, here in Portland, Maine, Merry Christmas from your main man, Micah. Micah and I had a conversation about federal air marshals, including how to become one and the training they receive. Micah, how are you? We're recording on a, well, a little bit of an off day. Yeah, we figured we'd put something together for the Christmas show since we're certainly not going to be recording on Christmas Day or that Monday before. That's right. And and we had a few items that we couldn't get to in a recent episode. And so we thought we'd talk about those uh, this time right now. And one of them was about air marshals. And the article in the Washington Post is titled, How to Become an Air Marshal, the Most Secretive Job in the Sky. And talking about air marshals in that service, it's an interesting topic. There are a lot of interesting aspects to that, uh, not the least of which is how you become one. But the history of how the air marshals were were formed and how they changed into what they are today is is kind of interesting as well. Yeah, it really amazed me. The article came out uh, the end of November, uh, but it's very, very topical. And uh, I had no idea. I mean, I knew that the air marshals were sort of a secret society, but in some ways even more secret than the CIA. Mm. They are, yes. And uh, they've been around for quite a while. We learned that uh, they were initially created after the hijackings in the 1960s. Now, I know you and I remember that. There may be many listeners who are, are too young to remember that, but there were quite a few airliners that were hijacked in the 60s. And so the Air Marshal Service, the Federal Air Marshal Service, was established then to try to deal with that. Uh, and then it was expanded somewhat in the 70s. And then after 9-11, there was another change. It was moved under the Department of Homeland Security and the TSA. Yeah, and, uh, you know, you talk about the hijackings of the 60s and some of the 70s. Part of the vernacular in, in the U.S. was take this plane to Cuba because that's oftentimes what, what had happened. Plus, there were so many others in so many different places. Uh, a lot of people think about uh, Entebbe and, uh, and what happened with that Air France flight. But, um, yeah, eventually the Air Marshal uh, Corps grew from 33 people to thousands, but the number is actually secret. Nobody knows. That's right. You don't want anybody calculating, you know, what's the, what's the probability that there's an air marshal on my flight? We, we have no idea how many flights have air marshals and, and how many don't. But you know what I found really fascinating is that they're air marshals. That's certainly the organization, but they're not just on airplanes. They're on subways. They're on ferries. They're in the airports. They're on trains. They're on buses. It's really uh, it's a transportation security organization that's uh, part of the federal government. Which makes a lot of sense to me that it would cover all those different modes of transportation. Uh, because, I mean, the threat, especially these days, the threat could be but any of those. Although we, we tend to think that on an airplane up in the sky, uh, the, the threat could have more, more serious consequences because you're up in the sky. Um, but yeah, they do cover other, those other modes of transportation. Which is kind of funny because there were so many hijackings and that phrase, take this plane to Cuba, became so common uh, back in the 60s that even Mad Magazine did a parody of it with a comic that I remember with somebody saying, take this bus to Cuba. And Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's funny. Yeah. Mad Magazine. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. 
sometimes you can kind of figure out who the air marshal is on an airplane. Uh, I don't know how accurate people's assumptions are. I mean, sometimes you'll see somebody and say, ah, oh, that must be an air marshal, but you don't really know. And I don't think that they dress in a certain way or present themselves in a certain way that's going to uh, give away the fact that they're an air marshal. Um, and the article notes that sometimes they tell the flight attendants uh, that they are on board. Sometimes they don't. And, you know, Betty from our favorite Betty in the Sky with a Suitcase. Yes. She's talked about this on her show a couple of times and says oftentimes she doesn't know, but sometimes she can tell. She's been a flight attendant so long, she just sort of recognizes it. But what else is interesting is that even if they confront somebody on an aircraft or if they're confronted, legally they don't have to disclose that they're an air marshal. They're just doing whatever they need to do to take care of the situation, and they don't have to tell the passenger. And I can imagine sometimes it may be to their advantage to identify themselves as an air marshal. I think it's very situational dependent, you know. Um, sometimes the way to deal with the issue is is not to disclose that. And there are probably other times where, you know, it, it works to their advantage to say, hey, look, I'm a federal air marshal. And if you don't sit down or, you know, whatever the, the behavior is that he's trying to, he or she is trying to modify, they have that discretion. So if you want to be an air marshal, which is, you know, another way really to get into an aviation job without being a pilot, we always think about pilots, but there are some pretty specific qualifications. Do we have a list of them? Yes, we do. It starts out with an obvious one, at least to me, is that you must be a U.S. citizen. If you want to be an air marshal, a federal air marshal, you have to be a U.S. citizen. Uh, but there are there are certain age restrictions, too. Really? Yeah, yeah. You have to be between... The ages of 21 and 36. I don't know how those numbers, those ages were determined, um, but that's it. 21 to 36, although they can make exceptions for military veterans uh, who are over 36. Well, you know, that has me curious, and there's nothing in the article about it, but that's a 15-year career. What happens to these air marshals when they have to retire? I mean, it's only 15 years. It's not like a 30-year career. And, you know, 36 years old, you know, the salaries start at $60,000. And, you know, maybe they go up from there. But it's not like they're making a lot of money to sock away. Well, you know, they probably get into other forms of uh, law enforcement or security services or, or that kind of thing. Uh, I think if you're uh, trained and qualified as a, a federal air marshal, you've got one heck of a resume item there because uh, this uh, this requires a lot of um, serious training, uh, a lot of capability, uh, besides having to uh, have earned a bachelor's degree or, or have three years of work experience. You have to undergo a drug test. There's the usual background checks, criminal and credit. Uh, there are interviews, evaluations for mental and physical condition. You have to pass a polygraph test. And, of course, there's a, a physical training assessment. Uh, the article mentions uh, one air marshal that they were talking with who said that that whole process, that took nine months to become, uh, to become an air marshal. And that's before the actual training of being an air marshal starts. At the academy, yes. That's a five-month process. It goes in several phases, and it starts out with, I don't think it's officially called 
Police 101, but that's kind of what it's like. It's a seven-week course, and that's held at a federal law enforcement training center either in Georgia or in New Mexico, and it's not training solely for air marshals. Other students at the training center is includes Secret Service candidates, uh, Amtrak police, things like that. So it's sort of a, a broad training program for certain law enforcement types. And if I remember correctly, you know, I'm um, I, I'm friends with a, a federal flight deck officer um, who, you know, I can't say who he is or, or, or anything, and he keeps it a secret. But if I remember correctly, he went out for his firearms training in, uh, in New Mexico. So I have a feeling that's part of it as well. Ah, probably. There are uh, other aspects to the training they receive, things like crowd control. That would make a lot of a lot of sense. Constitutional law, I think that's a very uh, a very interesting area because clearly they need to know what can they do, what can they not do. Also, things like uh, crime scene preservation, uh, how you respond to people that are exhibiting some kind of mental health crisis, things like that. So it's a pretty extensive training. You know, I'm happy they have that last part in there. That makes a lot of sense because oftentimes when you're dealing with somebody in a situation like that, it may not be a criminal thing, but it could be a definite mental health issue. And having that kind of psychological training in terms of how to deal with that is so critical in those situations. Sure. I I can imagine there are a number of situations, many of them probably, where the objective is de-escalation. And sometimes that takes force. Other times it doesn't take force. In fact, force maybe would just make the situation worse and you need to know how to interact with a particular individual or a group uh, that's possible also in in a way that calms the situation and, and lowers the temperature and brings it down to a manageable state. And that, that takes some skill. I think it's a skill that probably flight attendants have either through training or through experience. Uh, but – I can imagine that, uh, you know, if you, if you walk onto an airplane for the first time as a federal air marshal, uh, you need to have that kind of training. And uh, you don't want to earn that through experience. You want to walk walk onto the plane with that. Yeah, you know, often I think people think of air marshals, and granted, they are big, tough guys, but that they're going to be violent or they're, they're going to, you know, respond with violence. But nine times out of ten, and I've been in situations where I've had to work with police officers in some of my uh, dealings and my positions, you never want to respond that way. And that's the last way they respond. So that's all police 101, quote unquote. But that's not the end of it. There is additional training, and that takes place at the uh, TSA training center, the Transportation Security Administration's training center, which is close to Atlantic City International Airport. And that's an eight and a half week program where they learn the duties of an air marshal, observation techniques, physical fitness, aircraft tactics, active threat, and, and firearms. So with respect to firearms training, the air marshals have the uh, highest levels of, of firearms training um, that are available to others in law enforcement. You know, that makes sense that you would want them to be the most qualified with firearms because if God forbid they have to pull their sidearm on an aircraft and they have to shoot it. They want to hit the target they're aiming at, and they don't want to hit any other passenger, and they don't want to hit the aircraft fuselage or anything else or any equipment. So if they pull it, you want them to be able to hit it. It is probably about the worst 
environment I can think of, or the most dangerous environment I can think of, where you would fire fire a gun. I mean, it's like you say, yeah, you've got close proximity of all those people. You're in an aircraft, and you could have you know repercussions by piercing the the skin of the aircraft. So, you really do want them to have a lot of knowledge there. And the other thing that people don't realize, and I'm not an expert on this, but I have fired a sidearm here and there. And, uh, you know, when you watch TV and you watch the movies, it sounds like a bullet is loud. Or even if you hear a silencer, it sounds like it's quiet. It's not. If you, I mean, you wear earplugs, you wear hearing protection anytime you go to a range. It is loud. In an enclosed space like that, you're going to terrify a group of people just from one shot being fired, just from that loudness. It's not like a firecracker. You're absolutely right. The other thing that's really interesting about their firearms training is that in order to graduate from their firearms training, every air marshal has to have a score that would qualify them to be a firearms instructor in any other law enforcement field. Yes. So we've been talking about the training that they're required to take to uh, to start out their, their career as an air marshal, but that's, that's not the end of it. There is a requirement that they complete uh, 112 hours of additional training every year, and they'll do half of that at their local field office and half of that in Atlantic City at the TSA Training Center. So recurrent training keeps them sharp on their toes and current. And let's put that into perspective. 112 hours, that's eight hours short of three 40-hour weeks. (laughs) Right. This is a lot of training. So with all that, that's why I said before, Mike, I think that uh, after you retire from the Federal Air Marshal Service, you have a lot of training. You have a lot of qualifications. Uh, You could probably go into a lot of different law enforcement or security or other fields uh, with that background and experience you've had. I would think they would be kind of highly marketable. But it would be nice to be able to have uh, frank discussions, open discussions with air marshals and and talk about their experiences and things like that. But I don't think we could ever look forward to to that. No, I don't think we could with anybody who's a current air marshal or anybody who's even a retired air marshal. And part of what that article said, and it was a great article, is that one of the toughest parts about their job is putting up the facade of why they're traveling. I thought that was fascinating that they're told, yeah, say you're going to a funeral or you're going to a wedding or something like that because they can't tell anybody why they're on the aircraft and they're flying all over the world and it's there and back and there and back. And they're not... They don't have a two- or three-day layover wherever they get to. They are constantly going until they have their week off. And we all know sometimes we've been sitting next to a chatty seatmate who is uh, very eager to engage in conversation with you, ask questions like you say, what, you know, where are you going, what's, you know, what's your story and all that. And, and obviously they have to – the air marshals have to be prepared to – continue that kind of banter, you know, that kind of conversation without looking obvious or sounding obvious that it doesn't fit. So it just sounds like a fascinating job. Yeah, not one that I would have ever have been able to do in my life and certainly not one I can do now. No, (laughs) we're too old. Uh, But I don't think we'd pass the physical either. No, but I guess that's why, you know, we've never seen any books from retired air marshals because they they are secret. Micah and I recorded some thoughts on the Collings Foundation. You probably recall us talking about the Collings Foundation discontinuing their Warbird tour. Well, we talk about the impact of that decision. Micah, we've had occasion to talk about the 
Collings Foundation recently. The most recent news has been the decision by the foundation to discontinue touring the the aircraft, the World War II warbirds that you and I and obviously many others have have seen over the years. In many ways, it's kind of sad and has some impact. Yeah, you know, it was called the Wings of Freedom Tour, and they were out there nine or ten months out of the year flying all over the country with their their B-24, the the late B-17-909, a P-51 Mustang, most recently a P-40 Warhawk. And, um, and, you know, we got to see them together. I've got to see them a few other times. And they said they discontinued. Now, granted, we we lost 909, and we lost uh, Ernest Mack McCauley and a number of other people. And there was a lawsuit, like we talked about on episode, I can't remember, what was it, 777, I think. And uh, and this may have been part of the settlement. We don't know. It wasn't disclosed. What they say is that their mission was over, that they were touring the Wings of Freedom tour to bring back these warbirds, these aircraft, to World War II veterans who flew them. And we met a World War II veteran, a B-17 tail gunner, when we were in Lewiston and visited with 909. And we did. that was was fun. But... What I thought about wasn't really the World War II veterans, but the the young people, the, the people who have never seen these aircraft before. And I thought back to, well, 100 years ago, episode 267 in 2013, because I wrote a story about my experience watching someone see a P-51 for the first time. And let's listen to that again. I think that's apropos to this conversation and I think, Micah, you really capture what it's like to see these aircraft through the eyes of a youngster. I called this 1530 at 2 o'clock. Portland, Maine, 1530 hours. It's one of the last summer afternoons of 2013 and a perfect day. Clear blue sky, 70 degrees in the USA, 21 degrees in the rest of the world. A glorious day. I'm driving past PWM on my way to an appointment in downtown Portland. The beginning of runway 18 is at my 2 o'clock, about two miles distant. Now, as an airplane geek, my eyes are always to the sky, no matter where I am. And all of a sudden, I see a quick flash of a plane through the tree branches. Now, my keenly tuned airplane geek brain automatically analyzes what I see on final the 1-8. Sleek silver, single engine... And low, almost square-ended wings at about 500 feet. It wasn't in my field of vision for more than two seconds when it disappeared below the tree line. And when my geek brain told me what I saw, well, I'm confident I'm just daydreaming. No, couldn't be that. Then a millisecond later, and only for another instant, this time almost head-on through a small gap in the trees I saw it again. Damn, this is no daydream. That's a P-51. All right. I remember the Collings Foundation was at the Portland Westbrook Municipal Airport today, and here I am on my way to an appointment. Oh, well, that's how life is sometimes. I had seen the Collings Foundation aircraft before and had toured the B-17 and B-24 some years back. I went by myself then, and while I enjoyed it, it's not the same as sharing the experience with a friend. Not necessarily another airplane geek, but someone who can enjoy, well, or at least accept my geekiness. Well, I have an appointment, so I'm going to miss it this time, I think to myself. Then the phone rings. Hello, Micah? Sorry, have to cancel. An emergency. Can we reschedule? Well, okay then. Now I have some free time. What to do? I could just go to the airport and visit the planes, but as I said, I'd done that a few years ago. 
I put my airplane geek mind to work and thought of the PWM plane spotting parking area on the south side of the airport. Although the lot is set up to look north perpendicular to the terminal and runways 11-29, I'd be able to get a parallel head-on view of 18-36. The Collings Foundation was using the FBO on the north end of the field in runway 18. Okay, not bad. I get to the plane spotting lot, and there's only one other vehicle there, a tractor part of an 18-wheeler. I park my car and roll down the windows when I hear it. It's that Rolls-Royce Merlin. Then I see it. Yeah, it's a P-51 Mustang, geared down, still in ground effect on 1-8. It was beautiful. The silver fuselage and wings gleamed in the afternoon sun. Wow! Now, I always have my airband scanner and binoculars with me in the car, but by the time I got them out of the bag and back in the back seat, well, the Mustang had already made a 180 and was heading north. But I knew it would be back in about a half hour. I set myself up in the car. The scanner set to monitor the tower on primary, ground on secondary, binoculars on my lap. I sit back and I wait. A couple of other cars pull in near me. One of them was a father and son. The boy must have been eight or nine years old, and I hear the father say, Yeah, the Mustang should be back soon. Nice. Father and son watching airplanes together. It makes me think about my dad and how he would have enjoyed this. A few Skyhawks were shooting touch-and-goes on 1-8. This gave me some practice for the big event when the P-51 returns. A Delta CRJ-200 lands on 1-1, followed closely by a United Q-400. The Q-400 turned off 1-1 to taxiway A and was told to hold short of 1-8. I could overhear the boy ask his father, Why is that plane stopped there? The man said he didn't know, so I called over to him. I hauled up the scanner and said, I'm monitoring the tower. There's going to be a small plane taking off from the cross runway. The United plane was told to hold until the runway is clear. The man thanked me for the information, and I told him that when I heard the Mustang was back in the pattern, I'd let him know. About 20 minutes later, I heard the Mustang call the tower, saying he was about 8 miles out, and he asked to be cleared to do a flyover of 1-8. The controller okayed the flyover, and I got out of my car, scanner in hand, and binoculars around my neck. I let the father and son know the Mustang was approaching from the north, and they got out of their car, too. A few minutes later, the Mustang came in at about 300 feet. It was beautiful. He did a 180 and came back just slightly west, now paralleling 3-6. The gear lowered. I was looking through my binoculars, and I watched the wheels as I came down, as I had only seen before in films. What a sight! I realized that as an airplane geek... If I had only seen a P-51 flying only a couple of other times in my life, the odds were that the young father and his son may have never seen one before. I took my binoculars off from around my neck and offered them to the man. He thanked me and took them for a few minutes, watching intently, and went to hand them back to me. Seeing how excited his son was at what must have been his first look at a P-51, I asked the father if his son wanted to look through the binoculars, too. I could see the grateful expression in the man's eyes when he said thank you and handed the binoculars to the boy. The smile on that little boy's face gleamed like the Mustang in the sun. It may have been the same smile that was on my face when I first saw a P-51. A few minutes later, the Mustang came back around, landed on 1-8, taxied back to the FBO, and was out of sight. The man handed me back the binoculars, and the boy had an ear-to-ear grin. So, no... I didn't have anyone to go with to see the Collings Foundation's aircraft this year, and no, 
I didn't pay to get up close to see those beautiful airplanes. But maybe I did something that is even more important to keep those 70-something-year-old aircraft flying. Maybe what I did is what airplane geeks are supposed to do, and must do, if we want to continue to see those airplanes fly and hear the roar of four radial engines take flight together or the growl of a Rolls-Royce Merlin at 300 feet. Maybe I helped in the making of a new young airplane geek who will, like me and probably like you too, rejoice in the passion of those sights and sounds for years to come. Yeah, I guess I am an airplane geek. You know, Mike, a couple of things that strike me. One is there have been several occasions where I was driving down the road and I wasn't aware that there was some kind of an air show or something. And like you described in the story, you catch a glimpse of something and you know it's different. You know it's not the usual airplane in the sky that you see. I I can't remember uh, once uh, there was – this might have been in in upstate New York, an air show – and I'm driving down the highway, and an F-22 goes by. This is them practicing in advance of the of the air show that they're going to do. And the feeling that you get, you kind of in the, in the pit of your st- – I mean, you roll all the windows down for one thing. It doesn't matter that you're going 65 or 70 miles an hour because you want to hear that thing if it makes another pass across you. And it, I don't know. It just – at least for me, I, I, I'm all excited. I can I can feel the I don't know if it's the adrenaline or something but that that starts coursing through my veins. It's it's just an exciting thing to witness. It really is. And you know, I had I had another experience. My first experience with the Collings Foundation. I, I mentioned at the end of the story the the roar of four radial engines going. I was sitting in that very similar spot just driving along the first time the Collings Foundation came to Portland that I was aware of. And it was a cloudy day, and I kind of hear something, and I don't know what it is. And I roll down the windows to listen more. And it was just this cloudy, foggy day. And out of the blue came 909. And there it was, a B-17 flying in front of me. And I just couldn't believe it. And I really felt like I was in the movie 12 O'Clock High. It just felt just like that. It's a wonderful, wonderful feeling whether you're an airplane geek or not, I think. And yes. uh, I'm very sorry that these aircraft will no longer be flying. I know. It's it's our loss. It's a loss for the younger generation. I remember, and this was many years ago, the Collings Foundation was at Bradley Field in Connecticut. And they had the, the B-17, the B-24, and the P-51 Mustang. And it was the first time I had seen a a B-24, which I think we talked about a few episodes ago about uh, building airplane models. And I think I related that my pride and joy, sort of the culmination of my sort of meager, you know, skills at building airplane models was a B-24. And I had never seen one, an actual B-24 before. So that was just the spectacular. But the crowd was interesting because it was a very mixed crowd, everywhere from little kids to definitely veterans, you know, and everybody in between. A lot of people who were there had never never had an opportunity to to be that close to an aircraft like that uh, and uh, and be able to get inside and to talk to people about those airplanes and stuff. And uh, it, it was just, I don't know, it, it just felt like, 
a really good day for all of these people to have all these different experiences. But the one experience that, that I remember was that the, the P-51 went out to take a, a, a flight with a passenger. And I don't know, they were gone maybe 30 or 45 minutes or something. It was kind of a long, a long flight. Um, and they came back in, and so it was great to see the the Mustang landing and then taxiing up to, uh, to the area where the, the foundation had all of its aircraft. And the you know, the cockpit opens up, and the grin on the face of the guy in the back seat who went for a ride is something I will never forget. I mean, that was just the biggest grin you could possibly imagine. The P-51 Mustang flights are they're expensive. And this guy definitely got his money worth. Yeah, absolutely. And, and it, it was just like seeing that kid smile. Eight or nine years old, that was just a wonderful experience. And, you know, I just checked as we were talking. Hudson, Massachusetts, where the Collings Foundation Museum is, it's an hour and a half from you in Hartford. It's two hours from me in, in Portland. I think this summer we definitely need to arrange to get down there. I used to know somebody that worked for the Collings Foundation. Maybe we could arrange to get in and see some of the aircraft, talk to some of the people that work at the museum, and bring our listeners some great information and, and background on the Collings Foundation. I think that's an excellent idea. We also have uh, a number of listeners in that sort of Boston area, in that you know between Hartford and, and, uh, and Maine area where you are. And uh, we'll let you all know, you know when we're, when we're going to do this. And maybe we can get another little meetup going with with some of our listeners to also enjoy the the museum. So yeah, I'm I'm really looking forward to that. That's a great idea, Micah. I think that'll be great. Yeah. In episode seven seven nine, at the end in the listener mail segment, listener Mike tells us about the American Heritage Museum in Massachusetts. You can find more information about the museum there if you haven't already listened to episode 779. Okay, now listener Martin Kemp tells us about getting to know our late friend Launchpad Mirzari and his chocolates. Having started at ForeFlight with very little aviation knowledge, it was vitally important for me to learn as much as I could about the industry. And one of the ways that have really helped me to do that was uh, making use of my commute that I had about 45 minutes a day. And I discovered various podcasts. To be honest, I was absolutely amazed by the amount of information that exists. Firstly, as published by the FAA, uh, for instance, while learning to fly. But then also just folks publishing these podcasts and talking about industry news with their opinion based on the experience and the like. And the first podcast I started listening to was actually the Airplane Geeks. That was around 2016. Through that, I think it was just when Max Trescott started the Aviation News Talk podcast, which was enormously helpful because he was sharing his experience as an instructor and a pilot for many years. So those two podcasts alone were enormously valuable to start learning about flying and learning about the industry. And then through them, I learned about Airline Pilot Guy and also Opposing Bases. So those four have been my stalwart podcast to listen to that have really helped me and the teams are great. And then at one point, Max Flight from the Airplane Geeks had actually reached out just wanting to test a new audio system that he was working on to, uh, to reaching out to his listeners. Um, it, he was looking to adopt it for a recording um, to help with you know, the podcasts. 
I forget the name of it, but I ended up being able to get onto uh, the test that he was doing. And I got to meet Max Flight uh, virtually through that. Um, but then also Launchpad Mazari joined. He actually joined a bit late. Uh, we'd been chatting for a while and then Launchpad joined with, say, five minutes left of the test. And he and I got chatting. And, you know, anyone who knew Launchpad knows that once you meet him, then that's, you know, it's just he's this font of knowledge and just wanted to get to know everyone. And uh, he was he was an amazing guy, um, really enthusiastic. Um, so we met um, online and, uh, you know, you know, it was our first time in uh, on the meetings and he wanted to chat more. This was by now early 2021. Um, we, and we were chatting on the phone and we talked for an hour or two easily, just about a whole variety of subjects. And of course, we talked about um, him having a German connection. And for me, in terms of my parents having lived there before I was born um, and uh, learning to, you know, my parents learning to fly there um, and the German connection um, for him with his wife, Gabby, and having been based there as well. So we'd been chatting for quite a while. Uh, one of the things that happened was that Germany and England were due to be playing a soccer match during that year. And we had this a quiet bet on that whoever's team lost would end up having to buy lunch at the College Station Airport, which was a, um, an equidistant for us. We were going to fly in, meet and have lunch. Um, that March, we actually did get to meet up in person at the Blue Bonnet Air Show in Texas. Uh, Brad had flown up in his plane and had it on display. And we, we drove in and got to see a, a great air show. It was the first time we were meeting and instantly got on well. I could just see that association that he had with everyone. First thing he did uh, was offered me a chocolate. And I was just, that's kind of interesting. But I knew the chocolates and, and really liked them. So I took one. Um, he'd actually imported them from Germany, brought them over uh, whenever he went over, uh, back to Germany. Um, and so we, we had a good chat from there. And uh, um, there was actually due to be another show on July 4th that he flew down to and we were going to meet there again. Unfortunately, um, I didn't end up making it. But on the on the flight back for him, he ended up having a mechanical issue. Um, and unfortunately, as a result of that, he ended up having to ditch early with the aircraft and lost his life. And that was extremely distressing. Just such a shock. I remember being in San Antonio at the time when I found out about it. I was devastated to hear. Um, one of the things I knew that he, he had this gimmick with the chocolate. Um, every time he meets someone, he'd use it as a, an icebreaker. And I knew that he actually intended to take some up to Oshkosh. Um, his wife had brought some, a big pack over from Germany when she came back, uh, came over to the US. And uh, I felt that, you know, it, it was sad not for Brad not to be there, firstly. But then I just thought, well, um, it would be quite a, a nice thing in his honor to be able to distribute the chocolates there at Oshkosh. Um, and I reached out to Max and managed to get hold of Gabby through him. I live in Texas and it wasn't too much of a drive to go up and meet her. So firstly, I, I got to meet up and express my condolences and, and, and how much he meant to us in the community. But secondly, to pick up the chocolate because I was actually going to be flying to Oshkosh that year um, in a Mooney doing the, the Mooney mass arrival. Um, so, you know, I, I then was able to print up some small labels um, just saying in memory of Launchpad Mazari, uh, which, you know, went over very well with everyone who had them. Um, and it just really helped to kind of cement that involvement for him, even though I just met him a couple of short times. Um, but just the personality and exuberance that he expressed through the podcasts and in person, I, d I really just really felt it was important to do, especially with his involvement with the Pipistrel team, um, as well as the Warbird Society. So I was able to take a bag for them and to have to uh, and to share uh, with the attendees. And it was enormously touching to get to do that. 
And then I really appreciated that Micah uh, recorded the Chocolatier actual story that year as well in August of 2021. It was very heartwarming to have that experience. I always think of him, of him every Independence Day now. He was quite a personality and I definitely miss him. Anyway, so I just wanted to say thank you to the podca podcast producers. And I can't imagine how much work goes into it uh, for those four podcasts that I mentioned. I love being involved in the community and getting to have an impact with the efficiency and safety and working towards sustainable aviation and just to inspire as many people into flying. So thank you very much for listening. Thanks, Martin. We all deeply miss Launchpad. Okay, we'll, we'll finish up with Micah's year in review. Here it is. You may recall that last year, before I started writing my year-end review, I originally thought 2022 was pretty quiet for me aviation-wise. It turned out that that wasn't all true. This year I was thinking the same thing, and although it was certainly quieter than 2022, 2023 did have some aviation highlights. The first thing that happened gives me a constant reminder of one of my favorite flights. A friend of mine in the Netherlands, First Officer Myla, sent me a wonderful Christmas present in 2022. She sent me a beautiful die-cast model of a Boeing Stearman PT-17. This lovely purple Stearman was created as a premium model by Cadbury Chocolates, which, although not quite German chocolates, is still high quality and makes me think of Launchpad and his secret chocolate war. Anyway, it was January 1st of 2023 when I finally got around to displaying it the way I wanted to when I hung it from my office ceiling fan. Every time I walk into my office now, I think of Mila, of Launchpad, and of those fabulous flights in a PT-17 that Max and I had at the Owl's Head Transportation Museum. Again in 2023, we've had those weekly Sunday night aviation Zoom get-togethers hosted by our good friend Isaac Alexander. Isaac started these chats at the beginning of COVID, and everyone liked it so much that we still keep it going. Every Sunday night, a group of us get together and on alternate weeks review current events in either military aviation or general and commercial aviation. These group chats have been wonderful, and I made some friends that I've never met in person, just great people who have that common interest in aviation that makes fly-ins so much fun. It's two or more hours of hangar talk every Sunday night. One of those great connections through what we all refer to as Isaac's chat was another 2023 highlight for me. Cirrus owner and former naval aviator Andrew Nehemiah, although in North Dakota, made some connections through a Cirrus group he belongs to and set things up so I had a chance to fly in a Cirrus SR-22. It was my first time in a Cirrus and it was wonderful. Sure, I've heard Max Trescott rave about the Cirrus for years and years but in the back of my head, I kept saying, could they really be this great? Are they really that comfortable? Is he exaggerating? The answers in short are yes, yes, and no. The Cirrus SR-22 is a gorgeous, comfortable, amazing aircraft. And Max, I will never doubt you again. On Sunday, August 20th, Cirrus owner George Gall and I left the Portland Jetport on runway 29, turned north, and followed the coast to Lambert's Point in Freeport, and then on towards Bath Ironworks. Before I knew it, I could see Rockland and Al's head. Fast, smooth, and comfortable with a side stick control. Who could ask for more? Like I said, this was my first ever flight in a Cirrus. I hope it's not my last. Now, I invited two friends to come along on that Cirrus flight, but they turned down the opportunity. 
I should have known they would. How should I have known? Well, that brings me back to another highlight of 2023. You've heard Max Flight and I talk about the Spurwing Farm pancake breakfast and fly-in ad infinitum. Maybe ad nauseum for that matter. But it is a really wonderful experience. In 2022, I told you how a few of my non-geek friends came by and had so much fun, they said they would come back again in 2023. Well, with all the rain we had this year, the fly-in, which is always scheduled with a Sunday after the 4th of July, didn't take place until July 23. There was still a great turnout, and while not all my non-geek friends could make it, a few of them did, and it was wonderful to have them there with me. My friends Chris and Hope came back for their second year. They were the two I invited along on the flight in the Cirrus. As it turned out, it was Hope's birthday, just a bit before the fly-in, and I had told her I was giving her an experiential surprise birthday present this year. What was that surprise present? Well, friend of the show, helicopter pilot Ernie Eaton, was in attendance at the fly-in, and as usual, he flew in in his Red Robinson R-44 helicopter. I had worked things out with him to take my friends on their first ever helicopter flight, just once around the pattern, to let them experience how wonderful rotor wing flight can be. This was a complete surprise to them. They had no idea it was coming. Well, the day came and everything was set. Ernie came over and said, Okay, you guys ready? And that's when I told him about the surprise and said, You have a special birthday present helicopter flight. Ready to go? That's when Hope looked at me, pursed her lips, with a startled look in her eyes, and gently shook her head and said, No. Now, how many of you guys have seen the TV show Seinfeld? I've seen every episode several times. Remember the 79th episode called The Pie that first aired on February 17, 1994? The plot revolves around Jerry getting upset when he offers his then-girlfriend, Audrey, a bite of apple pie, and she refuses. Later in the show, Jerry and Audrey go to eat at Poppy's Pizzeria, Poppy being Audrey's father, and Jerry notices that Poppy did not wash his hands after using the toilet. Then, after seeing Poppy kneading the pizza dough with his unwashed hands, Jerry refuses to eat the pizza in the same manner that Audrey rejected the pie by shaking his head from side to side. Oh, remember that head shake? That's the same look I got from the birthday girl when I offered her the helicopter ride. It just cracked me up. But I was so disappointed. I really wanted to give her something special, but I could see that she was scared and really didn't want to go. Ernie was gracious as always and said he would be on his way and headed home as the fly-in was almost over. And although I was really disappointed that she didn't want to go flying, the look on her face was priceless and was one of this year's highlights. We did talk about it later, by the way. She just doesn't like to fly and is one of those people who tolerates it when she needs to get somewhere but just does not care for flying. As I've said before, non-airplane geek friends are, well, just different. About the same time as the fly-in, another non-airplane geek friend of mine got a new dog. He's an Australian Labradoodle, and his name is Rocky. Now, why would this have anything to do with my aviation highlights of 2023? As John Ostrower says, there's always an aviation angle. Well, Rocky's owner, Laura, is not an airplane geek in any way. But Rocky is. Laura lives right under the pattern of Brunswick Landing, the former Brunswick Naval Air Station. Whenever Rocky's outside, he watches every aircraft fly through the airspace until out of sight. He and I like to do it together. Maybe we'll be able to post a video of him doing it in the show notes so you can see for yourself. 
I can't wait to take him for a picnic at the table under the static display of the P3 Orion at the base next summer. Now I know some of this is out of order, but sometimes storytelling happens that way. In June, I headed down to Richmond, Virginia with my good friend and Kreplak brother, Eric, to visit my genetic brother, Rick. I don't want to say real brother, as family is often what you make it to be. We had a great time, and in all seriousness, the three of us truly get along like brothers. On the way back, Eric and I stopped in Quantico to visit the National Museum of the Marine Corps. While not a singular aviation museum, there are definitely some aviation exhibits. We only spent a couple of hours there, but it truly could have been the whole day. Some of the exhibits are very moving, and I must admit, I was holding back tears at a few of them. August brought another special occasion to me in Maine. Major Rick Bell and his lovely wife, Erin, were up this way visiting, and we were able to get together for dinner. We chose the Millow's Floating Restaurant, actually built on a docked ferry that used to plow the waters between Cape May, New Jersey, and Delaware. It's one of those places that, while yes, is a tourist attraction, has great food and service, and is a place that locals go to as well. It was a great visit with Rick again. We talked about aviation, his time at Colgan Air and then Republic, as well as his current work flying C-17s with the 911th Airlift Wing. I learned about the only C-17 in the world painted with invasion stripes, and that there may be another Wings over Pittsburgh coming in 2025. Poor Aaron. Rick and I were such blabbermouths she could hardly get a word in. Are you familiar with Costco Wholesale Warehouse Clubs? Well, they finally opened up a store here in Maine, and I decided to join. Doesn't sound like an aviation story yet, does it? Well, as I was signing up in September, the salesman started talking about travel benefits. I told him I knew all about it and did some travel writing and aviation podcasting. It turned out that he was actually an airplane geek with lowercase letters and was planning a trip to the UK with his friends to visit aviation museums. Being ever prepared, I grabbed my microphone out of the trunk of my car, plugged it into my iPhone, and did an interview with him on the spot. What a fun surprise. Now I have to get out of order again. In May, Portland Jetport director and friend of the show, Paul Bradbury, invited me to the Jetport to take part on the inaugural celebration of the first flight to Portland, Maine by Breeze Airways. It was a wonderful party with a water cannon salute, a champagne christening, and even lobster rolls for all passengers coming and going on this first flight. Among the people I got to talk to that day was Lucas Johnson, Chief Commercial Officer for Breeze Airways, who invited me to do a review flight and put me in touch with the Media Relations Department. Well, scheduling for me turned out to be tight for most of the summer, but Breeze Airways stood by their word and took me to Tampa and back in November. Now, yes, Breeze paid for my flights, and I want to make sure that I fully disclose that. But you know me. I'm stubborn and opinionated. And if I have a problem with something, even if it's free, you're going to know about it. That being said... Breeze was wonderful. One of my best flight experiences from check-in to disembarking. The flight attendants were great. The pilots were super. The in-flight service was top-notch, and I would not hesitate to fly them again. Breeze Airways is exactly what you want in an airline. Low prices and high-quality service. No wonder they don't bill themselves as a ULCC, ultra-low-cost carrier, but instead they took on the moniker of NLCC, nice low-cost carrier. Flying down was great. It was dark as we departed, as it gets dark early up here in Maine in the late fall. The flight to Tampa left around 5 p.m. Eastern Time, but I got to see the Manhattan skyline by night, 
as well as the Chesapeake Bay Tunnel Bridge and the Norfolk Naval Shipyard. Of course, Tampa was also terrific. I got to visit with former Airplane Geeks producer Brian Coleman, who I hadn't seen since we traveled to the UK together in 2022. I also got to meet his mom, who, as I'm sure you assumed, is equally wonderful. I guess those things run in the family. On top of that, while I was in the Tampa area, I got to visit with my cousin, who drove to see me from Florida's east coast. We got together in an airport restaurant called The Hangar at the Albert Witted Airport in St. Petersburg. It was a cloudy day, but it was still a great view, and The Hangar is one of the classiest airport restaurants I have ever seen. It was filled with aviation enthusiasts and just regular folk who wanted to eat in a nice place. So not a bad year. And that doesn't even take into account all the aircraft I got to see and even photograph at the Mac Jets FBO at the Portland Jetport. Those included a Cessna 750 Citation 10, a Flexjet Embraer Praetor 500, Intellisat's Bombardier CRJ 701ER, a Marine Beechcraft C-12 Euron, as well as a civilian Super King Air, a Learjet 60, a Dassault Falcon 900, two Air Force C-130 Hercules, a blue and yellow Rattan Long EZ, an Army Blackhawk UH-60, and a Diamond DA-40. And that only lists the ones I remember. But there's been so much traffic to Mack jets that I got to watch them go through a big tarmac expansion. So overall, not a bad year in Airplane Geeks-related events. I wonder what 2024 has in store for me. For the Airplane Geeks, here in Portland, Maine, this is your main man, Micah. All right. That's our episode. We'll take next week off and return to our usual format in two weeks. You can find us at airplanegeeks.com. And of course, the direct link to the show notes for this episode is airplanegeeks.com slash 780. Our email address is thegeeks at airplanegeeks.com. Feel free to write us there. So please join us in Two weeks as we talk aviation on the Airplane Geeks podcast. Happy holidays, everybody. 